0: The Jodcast, Culling the Herd, with Naomi Asabra Frimpong, Monique Henson, Jake Morgan, Benjamin Shaw and Charlie Walker. The Jodcast, Blue Dot 2017 Special Edition Mark II.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to The Jodcast, I'm Charlie and joining me in the studio are three people today. So we've got Ben. Hello. And we've got Naomi. Hi. And we've got Jake. right. So, in the show this time, we're going to be taking you on our second whistle stop tour of the Blue Dot Festival, which took place in the summer at Jodrell Bank Observatory. We talked to John Spooner about how he hacked his way into space, Grant Monroe about the hidden heroes of astronomy, and Amy Vincent about mitochondrial disorders. But first, before all of that, Monique interviews Beth Rogers about sun worshippers and lunatics.
2: I'm here with Beth Rogers from Guerrilla Archaeology at the Blue Dot Festival. So Beth, could you tell us a little bit more about what Guerrilla Archaeology is and what you're doing here at the festival? Okay, so uh, Guerrilla Archaeology
3: is a branch um, from the Department of Cardiff University. A couple of lecturers got together and decided that probably it was a better idea to try and get the public more involved. So we go around different festivals, we try to do um, sort of interactive activities with different themes we did a theme a couple of weeks ago which was bog bodies and the theme today is sun worshippers and lunatics a uh, very strong focus on the bronze age but also at how they um interpreted their relationship with the sun and the moon i've got um a couple of examples so i've got the Nebraska Sky disc and um it's a large bronze plate and it's got a gold inlay it's about the size of like a large dinner plate, um, and it's got a couple of odd shapes on it. We think the central shape are uh, two shapes. One is a crescent moon and one is a full moon. Some people like to argue that the full moon is more a sun, but because the uh, bronze has been deliberately sort of darkened and the other shapes around it may be stars, we'd like to interpret that it's all moons. Um, so around those shapes are lots of little dots, which are all sort of random, but there are seven that are in a constellation, and they're the seven sisters. This was very important because it t- it told uh, farmers at which point they should harvest their crops or sow their crops. So they used it as like a, st- a sign each time it appeared in the sky that this is what they were supposed to do, and it was okay to continue. And then at the bottom of this disc is a sort of another crescent, kind of like a banana shape, and um, we believe this might be a boat. So they kind of had uh, this idea that maybe the sun went under the earth at night, was extinguished and carried by a boat, brought round and then uh, was reignited or sort of came back to life for dawn. That was carried by a boat and then we have other examples which was sun chariots which was also made from bronze and gold. These are all sort of three and a half thousand years old and uh, they were deliberately buried and they were deliberately sort of damaged. So maybe there was a ritual going on to try and sort of capture the magic. Um, we, We like to say that maybe these images were made because a lot of them were made in northern Europe where they had shorter days in the winter. Maybe this was their way of asking the sun to come back up. So that they could have more hours so that their crops could be healthier and better and that kind of idea but they may have just been making it because it passed the time of day <laughs> obviously no internet no wi-fi there wasn't much else that they could do really but the pieces of art are amazing um and there's obviously been so much work put into them like the trond sky chariot is an exact replica of a uh, original one and the gold disc on it has been like lovingly decorated with sort of circles and squiggles and maybe that's the idea of uh the sun at midday or like at its brightest point but the back of the disc um hasn't been decorated so maybe it's an
2: interpretation of day and night and that kind of thing so that's really interesting how these like pieces can tell you about people's relationship with the sun and the moon and like especially as astronomy is is such a old part of human culture actually yeah. it's fascinating you can get such insights from you know one or two pieces
3: yeah, well, um, the, there's also the, like the hats. Um, these are hats, sort of. Uh, we're not really sure what the material was inside, but um, outside of it is, is gold that's been hammered into shape. Uh, they've been found in Germany as well, they're also Bronze Age. And uh, none of them are found in the same area, so it suggests that people are traveling around and suggesting how's the best way to show off either wealth. Uh, we think maybe uh, priests wore them. So uh, they were trying to sort of show off how clever they were. Um, the disks on them are quite interesting because they're supposedly a um, calendar. Oh, wow. but there's some sort of formula you can do where you mm-hmm. add up some of the circles and then you divide by a number and it's supposed to give you um, a certain number which you can sort of associate with the point mm-hmm. of the moon and what, what it's supposed to look like. So it was all kind of educational and if
2: priests wore it, they could say that they could predict the future. And that's fascinating. And also I, so I, I should describe these as well. Cause I did not know So there's some models of them here. I did not know that these were meant to be hats at all. Cause yeah. they're kind of tall and thin. I mean, this one i've got in front of me is possibly about half my height but it's quite narrow um, so about the size of my hand with my head these are two sizes size. which is mm-hmm. just bizarre like yeah. they aren't even and then they've got uh, going round them in um they've got uh, circles repeated all the way round and layers all the way up so which is what she was talking about in terms of using them to tell the yeah. date and the time that kind of thing they are frankly bizarre I don't, are. I don't know
3: <laughs> they actually survived almost in the state so you can see the images um, they literally survived like this because they were lovingly filled with soil before they were buried in the hope that the the sheep would stay and made sure that the tops of them pointed up to the sky still even though they were in the earth it, there was definitely a ritual going on whilst they buried them they're just very strange yeah. <laughs> but they're absolutely the amazing they look beautiful so
2: No, that's absolutely fascinating. Um, So you were saying that um, Guerrilla Archaeology goes to lots of different festivals. What kind of other things have you also run?
3: Oh, uh, so they're about to go to Wilderness. They did Luna last year. Uh, They've just been to um, Glastonbury as well. And then there's the Green Man Settlers Festival also. And we'll be at all of them. We've got different themes. So like I mentioned, we did bog bodies. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about hair and makeup and how they changed their skin. So tattoos... Um, because bog bodies and people who are frozen are the only people that we can find that still have hair. So we can learn hairstyles from them. So it turns out like certain knots for men meant that they were better in combat or whatever. You know how we expect men to have shorter hair nowadays. Well no, they were supposed to have really long hair so they could show off all their elaborate styles. Um, And then we also spoke about ochre and how they would uh, decorate their faces. Um, We spoke also about tattoos, because some of them survived in some of the Icemen, so like Otsi. It looked like some of his tattoos were on places where he had osteoporosis. So maybe he was trying to do it as like a healing process, or maybe there was just a sort of a map of where he'd been, because he had obviously travelled a lot. Who is Otsi? Oh, he was an Iceman. He was found up in the Alps and uh, 5,000 years old, I believe, wow. yes, um, and he was buried, almost like, he sort of buried himself ritualistically, uh, so he laid out all his weapons around him, and he was perfectly preserved, so. Wow, that sounds like
2: a gold mine. Yeah. <laughs> for an archaeologist.
3: Exactly what we wanted when yeah. we found that, and there's a couple of others around the world, but they're not commonly found, mm. so... um We're trying to make all these assumptions from very small pieces of information about civilizations that were really quite large. Mm -hmm. So we like to try and throw information at people and see if they can bounce back and say, Mm -hmm. well, what do you think? And we can stand there and go, yeah, maybe that's one way to interpret it. But this is the reason why we think it. Mm
2: No, I love that, and I love that um, you see public engagement as this two-way process, rather than yeah. just scientists kind of going, "Here is what we know." It's, it's, you know, you also take something away from
3: it. Yeah, absolutely. We're always wanting to get information back.
2: So some of the things like the sky chariot,
3: mm-hmm. the idea of pulling the sun across the sky and back under the earth, that can be found in Egyptology. That can mm-hmm. find Greek mythology, Roman mythology, and so many people know more about that kind of civilizations. So we
2: yeah. like to have some more
3: information bounce back
2: at us. So. Mm-hmm. that's fantastic. Well, thank you for talking to us at the Jodcast today. Um, I hope you enjoy the rest of the festival. Thank you very much.
4: Thanks for that, Monique. Next, we have John Spooner from the Unlimited Space Agency on how he hacked his way into space.
2: Hi, I'm here with John Spooner, the Artistic Director of Unlimited Theatre and the Director of Human Spacelight at the Unlimited Space Agency. Welcome to the Jodcast.
5: Hi, Monique. Thanks very much for having me. We're here in my capacity as Director of Human Space Flight Operations for the Unlimited Space Agency, which is the space agency that I accidentally set up about seven years ago. We were writing a play. We'd been commissioned to write a play for children all about science because my theatre company Unlimited Theatre specialises in collaborating with working with scientists so we've worked with quantum physicists with neuroscientists and then for this show we wanted to make a show about space because I really like space and it's a great way of unlocking an interest in then lots of other science for young people in particular but you know there's a lot of adults that likes space as well and in the course of making that show scientists that we met researched the subject with. The play was called Mission to Mars, so we were looking at human spaceflight missions. We met some really cool people, in particular including one woman called Gail Isles, Doctor Gail Isles, Doctor Awesome as she prefers to be called, who at the time was working as an astronaut instructor at the European Astronaut Centre in Cologne in Germany. She's a condensed matter physicist. I have no idea what that actually is, but she's very cool. And she invited us out to train with her for three days as astronauts at the Astronaut Centre. And that was really the start of my adventure in terms of then wanting to try and actually get to space. It was at the same time that Tim Peake had just joined the European Space Agency. We met him when we were out there doing that research. I was dancing inside the mock-ups of the International Space Station that they used to train the astronauts in. Tim was there at the time. In fact, all that group of astronauts that had just been recruited, so Luca Parmentano, Samantha Cristoforetti, they were all there. It was very cool you know, seeing them train in the neutral buoyancy facility and just being really cool and astronauty. But we kept in touch with Tim. Then, as we made more projects through the space agency that we had accidentally set up by starting this space agency, Tim continued to support. The, he's the patron of the space agency now, helping us to both promote, but also he's been really great at being really actively involved with a lot of the activities that we organise. Uh, so, it's all about live performance interaction using game design and storytelling to engage young people with science. And then, working with lots of other very cool scientists to make up those missions and we here with the space shed it's modeled on my actual shed my garden shed that i make up and write all my stories in at home we've built one here it's a bit whiz bang we've got smoke and lights and video and set massive pa inside it and that's where we tell the story from and we've got lots of agents like thousands and thousands of children that are members of the space agency and they've seen the films that we make um, and put on youtube which are all based in the space shed i think it's very special for all of me in particular that there is now an actual space shed that we can tour to all the festivals and tell those stories in.
6: You said
2: this all started when you went off to the European Space Agency and you spent three days training there as well. What was that like? And It was really,
5: really exciting. It wasn't something that I'd expected to happen at all. I'm an artist, I'm a writer and a theatre director, but I really, really love working with scientists in particular just because there's so much interesting stuff that's happening and I get to learn a huge amount and then if I can do you know, a part of a job which is helping to communicate some of those really exciting ideas from the leading areas of research, but also increasingly looking at how can we as artists maybe feed into help with areas, aspects of that research, not in technical ways probably but certainly in ways of bringing audiences to increasing an understanding of it at early stages in the development of those things so that the researchers can have some feedback and useful responses that might actually influence the research in positive ways but also ask questions that might not otherwise get asked going out to train as an astronaut was a very practical way of finding out what it is to try and get in space and actually beyond just being really excited because you know the kit is cool the people are cool it was really revelator i guess understanding how seriously everyone takes it actually how everyone says you know going to space is difficult and you know famously I think it was Gene Cernan and the Apollo missions were like there is no room for error if you fail people die you know it is one of the it is life and death when it comes to human spaceflight but even if you're just launching uncrewed space vehicles satellites you've still got you know that is a hugely expensive thing to go wrong if it does beyond the fun of it also developing a really deep respect for all of the people that are working inside it And then finding who the fun people are as well. So, like, Tim is really fun. Gail, really fun. There are some people that are not quite as fun. (laughs) But it's like, that's okay because we found
2: the fun people. That sounds fascinating. With your space shed, you tell that story of how you hacked into space. Obviously, I don't want you to, I don't want to spoil your story for anyone who sees it later on. But could you just give us a brief overview of that? (laughs)
5: There's inevitably spoilers. So here's the spoiler alert. If you're planning on coming to see How I Hacked My Way to Space, which is the show, then this is the spoiler alert for you. Telling stories is a very powerful thing, not just for children, but for all of us. It's how we explain and describe the world to ourselves, you know, and science does that really well. And if you can tell the story really well about what it is that you're doing, why it's important to people, then people get really excited about it. My job is telling stories, you know, that's the thing that I've spent 20 years learning how to do and developing how to do that's, that's my area of research i like to think of it as the last seven years have been an ongoing piece of performance art for me where i basically go around saying i'm the director of human spaceflight operations for my own space agency some people are annoyed by that they're the less fun people that are really serious about their world that think that i'm not taking it seriously and i am But I'm just, you know, being playful as well, because that's a good way to engage people. But you always find, like I say, those fun people and they will come on that journey with you. And the fun people, it's how you get great ideas. Then developed me saying this and being invited to places, including NASA run a global space apps challenge, which because they have a huge amount of data, they have a huge amount of uh, stuff, but a limited amount of resource in order to process that. So they go, these are the problems we're currently facing in areas of human space flight, how can you as hackers come together and maybe solve some of these problems i went along and to a couple of these events um my problem is that you know i really want to go to space but i don't have any way of getting there so the first one i went along to i said you know my mission is to hack my way into space in the next 24 hours one of the guys There are people that go, well, you're just a nutter. And other people that go, oh, come over here. I've got an idea. And we built a team that miniaturised me, scanned me, 3D printed me, put me on a... At that stage, over the years, we've sort of made the story. First, it was just helium-filled party balloons. And then the Met Office, we worked with them to do a high-altitude balloon launch. At some stage, we won a prize through those hackathon events. We won a global prize for... Best mission concept for a spacesuit that we designed—a connected, internet-connected spacesuit that we designed for Tim. And again, this one where Tim was really great—he scoped in, he spoke to all the people that were working on the team designing it, so we could really customize it for him. Rose was to go to a rocket launch at Cape Canaveral, which was really cool. Again, <laughs> while I was out there, I hooked up with Tim because he lives in America. <laughs> I asked him if you know, I've got this minifig of me. Would you take him with you when you go to space? Because he'd been confirmed to fly to the ISS by this stage. And he said yes. He took him with him in his personal kit. And so, you know, that I tell the story of how I hacked my own space. And part of that is the story of, you know, how it's not always plain sailing. Going to space is difficult, and you encounter all those problems and how you have to deal with them.
2: And I think that's such a great story as well, because you showed how you went through, like, lots of different agencies and stuff, like, trying different things, and, and eventually you got there through a route you may not have expected. <laughs> I saw a bit of your show yesterday, and the kids absolutely loved it as well.
5: <laughs> we just had a family come up, actually, and the parents were like, that was great, you know, that's so good for adults as well as for the kids, and I was like, well, great, yeah, That's because that's, you're our audience. It's like, mm-hmm. I want to make work, because I've got children, two boys of my own, mm-hmm. they're 13 and 11 now, but that's part of the reason why I started making work for families, mm-hmm. wanting to make stuff that we can go to and do and mm-hmm. experience as a family, and if you've got a good story and you can tell it well, then that's for everyone, so...
2: So you were saying that you've really striven to make something that appeals to both kids and their parents. It was a whole family experience. Has that changed your approach in any way? Or is there anything that you've taken from that that you didn't expect?
5: It's a tonal thing. It's a weird tone that some people, when they're making work or projects for young audiences take with them and it's not something I've ever bought into or really enjoyed. I've always spoken to my own children in a way that I feel is very respectful of their abilities to take on board stuff and sometimes they think I'm weird. You have to find that tone that is appealing to a lot of people and not underestimate your audience is the thing as well. And you know they'll ask you the questions and those young audiences are the ones that will definitely ask you the tough questions while you're trying to do the thing. And I think it's really important that there is stuff and things that you can do together that you can all enjoy that you can go away from and have a conversation about together rather than and this was my experience that when my kids were very young have to have a four-year-old really excited about going to the immersive bob the builder experience and all the time me to be inside my head trying to get to my happy place while this is happening and the kids didn't even think that much because it, it was like a working model of capitalism in its purest form and the whole exit through the gift shop thing was just this really intense experience and i did think at that point i'm gonna have to do it myself i'm gonna have to make some stuff that i can do with my kids and, and the other people can come and do with their kids and if it's in the process then unlocking an interest in things sub- that they are going to then go on and pursue a little bit more. So, our job is to inspire them. We work with a lot of people to then do follow up activities that really allow people to go deeper into the subjects We've got an app, it's free. It's a free app that has been funded by the UK Space Agency, by the Paul Hamlin Foundation. It's a really fun app where basically you sign up as an agent of the Unlimited Space Agency, you create an avatar, and then you go on missions. We've made films in the space sheds, and each time you complete a mission, which has been co designed with one of the partners, we've got the Royal Observatory, our place in space. Space. Then the Met Office. We do space weather. European Space Agency about fitness and nutrition and how that works in space. Coding in there with Young Rewired. The Science Museum how to launch and build rockets. Inside there, it's all curriculum linked. It's there if you need it as a teacher and a school. Also, a lot of people that home educating their kids, and also now increasingly just people that really want to do the missions because they get badges. They're endorsed by those people as well. So they got a badge from not just us, but from the Science Museum as well. And every time they complete a mission, they unlock the next episode in the films and the films feature. Tim as well and we animate Mini-Me Mini-John he's one of the characters in there it's about making it really fun and also investing a lot of work and thought and time into it to make it really good the big thing in there for me is helping those young people understand how these subjects apply to their lives and the big challenge that you see people in working in education is that children are demotivated because they don't understand how this subject applies to their life why am i studying this this has no meaning in my life i think space is a great way of being able to go if you do this then you can go here the broad thing anyone here wants to go to space yes do science that's how you get to space
2: that's a great message and it's true actually as well and I think a lot of people don't realise that even if you don't get because very few people get into space yeah. but thousands of people work in space related activities never realised how big the space industry is in the UK it's yeah, yeah. absolutely massive what you're doing getting kids interested but also the parents so often I speak to parents and they go oh my son loves this but I don't understand anything what you're doing kind of bridges that gap a little bit because it brings them into it
5: absolutely and it's about doing it together so that you do have that shared Thing. And I think that can be tough sometimes as a parent. If it's fun and if your kid really wants to do it, you find a way of making that work as well. Really interesting. Just doing the talk just now with one of your colleagues. I know that you were in the space shed yesterday, but Ben Shaw was. We just now talking about pulsar astronomy. A little way into it, just said, "Let's have a show of hands. Who wants to be like Ben? Who wants a job as a pulsar astronomer?" Loads of hands going up, and it's like, okay, that's cool.
2: That's exactly what you want to see. You've been working on the space shed for seven years now. So, what are you looking forward to next?
5: good question monique you know there's a lot of talk in the space agency at the moment about what our next mission should be so we've had our first astronaut mini go into low earth orbit we've reach that milestone I think now it's the big question is it moon or is it Mars or is it deeper into space is it a return trip is it a one way trip I think we'll probably have to consult with a membership and the agents of ANSWER and see what they want to do and where they want our next space adventure to go
2: great well we'll keep an eye out for it and I'm definitely going to go download the app because I love anything gamified <laughs>
5: it's called the Astro Science Challenge and it's free to download for both iOS for Apple uh, devices and for Android devices you can do it just on a web version of it as well if you go to Astro ScienceChallenge.com. It's got all of the details there that anyone might need if you're interested.
2: Great. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast and I hope you enjoy the rest of the festival.
7: Thanks very much. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for that, Monique. And now we come to the part of the show where we talk about random things that don't fit anywhere else. The awesome ends, and this really is an end.
0: Yeah, it is a bit. So today marks the last episode in which Charlie and I are responsible for the show. We're passing responsibility for the podcast over to Jake and Naomi here. So yeah, it's kind of the end of an era. Charlie and I were the fifth executive producer of the show. Jake and Naomi will be the sixth. So we are now, I guess, emeritus
1: producers, as it were. We've been going for quite a long time, actually, about two years and a month. So if you noticed a remarkable decline in any particular part of the podcast over that time, it may well have been due to us. Punctuality was something that we weren't strong on sometimes.
0: Very much so, especially, I mean, you know, right now, well, we're both just going into our fourth years. And so certainly in recent months, shows have been coming out kind of quite sporadically because we've been completely unable to prioritise the Jodcast over our own work. And so, unfortunately, that means that certain shows have come out late. Certain shows just haven't come out at all. But...
1: It's the start of a new year. Yeah. We've got a whole new crowd of people we've just recruited. Um, and we and have. we've had several the, new sign ups. The transition to you guys. So yep, how do you yeah. feel about that? Kinda scared
4: but also kind of excited. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah, really now. excited. Yeah. Yeah.
7: yeah.
4: You can do what you want.
7: <laughs> yeah. Our in begins.
4: <laughs> yeah. Although I think you'll agree with me when I say we've got some big shoes to fill
7: yep <laughs>
4: <laughs> i think we just took over
1: at a good time actually yeah we were remarkably lucky to be taking over during the 10th anniversary um, one of my favorite things that we've done which we helped organize was the Jogcast live in march of 2016 which was an amazing experience well we,
0: we didn't help organize it that was just ours we did it yeah and it was a it lot was of people awesome. helped yeah. as well though yeah but it was a massive success um a full room and yeah i mean that Probably goes down as my favourite thing that we've actually done with the Jodcast.
4: Yeah, so um, that was the live recording at Jodrell Bank, yeah? Yeah. March
0: 2016, we had about 50 or 60 people turn up. Nice. We had cake. Wow. It was just I cake. like cake. Yeah, yeah. yeah cake. Uh, <laughs> Sally Cooper's stepmom. Baked us some cakes and we, cool. we had a really good celebration in front of the Lovell telescope. So we I was... Had
1: some of the other emeritus producers. Um, mm, yeah, they came yeah. to yeah. give. That's nice. So who knows? Maybe at the next Jodcast live one that. maybe we might be invited back.
0: Yeah, I mean it's January's What's coming just, up, so you, you, you
1: <laughs> January's coming up, so you guys might want to do a twelfth
0: anniversary Jodcast live.
4: It's possible. Don't it's don't, think don't about... do it. Don't do it. <laughs> Why? <laughs> <laughs> it it turned out to be a huge hassle to organise? It was
0: fantastic.
1: It was a lot of fun,
0: but it took months
1: of time. It took a long, 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 long long time. It was quite stressful. I think Ben, in particular, had a major role to play in making it happen. So, thank you for that, Ben. I didn't
0: have a weekend to myself for months. It took a very long time. It was, and cost quite a lot of money as well, actually, as it turned out. So, was
4: that for, like, hiring a room or...? Hiring a
0: room, equipment...
4: Car park um, spaces. Car park spaces. Oh, Yeah
0: and and actually paying our guests to come down the, the biggest cost was just travel expenses for yeah. 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 oh, the okay. gem, Chris Lintot
1: and, other places yeah. um,
0: mm. that's you know all in all we spent the best part of a grand putting that on but
1: it was totally worth it yeah, so. yeah. and we've had requests for another one so if you're feeling <laughs> up to it uh, yeah I'm sure
7: that there's an excuse well we might just think about it mm. Mm. Yeah. wait for mm. the 15th anniversary
0: <laughs> but we're not quite done with organising stuff yet we are Currently writing a grant proposal to get some new equipment, but also hopefully bringing out some Jodcast T-shirts. Yeah. Having a couple exhibits, if our grant actually gets accepted, placed at Jodrell Bank Observatory, where Ian Morrison's Night nice Sky can be listened to at mm. a listening post and people can come and submit questions to Ask an Astronomer via
1: Jodrell Bank itself. So, so I guess okay. we're still holding on with clenched fingernails.
0: For now, for now, for now. We're not yeah. completely gone and we will still be appearing in episodes Fingers for a crossed. while. Fingers, Fingers crossed. Yeah. But yeah. basically, <laughs> yeah. all the decision making, all the hassle is now it's yours. It's now ours. Mm-hmm. Cool. Mm.
7: Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah.
4: Well, I anticipate there'll be at least one point where we have to come in and say, Ben, Charlie, it's not working. <laughs> so what I do? I, of, do? Most I, often, <laughs> I
1: often cross the room and go, Ben, it's not working. What do I And sometimes vice versa. Well, it all depends. we, we, versa, we yeah. have our own specialities but that's why it's good to be a two people team two oh team. yeah it's yeah.
4: it's definitely too big for one person to handle
7: yeah it's too big and I think we're a good team we'll work really well I think we also, well we're next yeah. to each other in, a, in one of in the a offices. professional capacity yeah. <laughs> yes in <the> a <laughs> professional capacity so we're a good team so I hope you can fill your big shoes and our win of and our win-off terror can. begins as I always say <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: No, we wish you all the luck with it. I think you're going to enjoy it and it's a really fulfilling thing to do. That's I mean,
1: all. also, thank you to all the listeners out there who've got in contact. We've been working on it for almost three years and, yeah, we really appreciate all the contacts you send in via email, via uh, tweets and via Facebook.
4: And the, the, postcards. the yeah. postcards. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah we, I love the fact that we have so many postcards up on the wall here. Yeah,
1: yeah. like, everyone is so enthusiastic and that makes it a really fun thing to do and yeah. it so fulfilling also yeah.
7: to know that like people are out there listening to you it's
1: helped me come out of my shell a little bit as well it's helped me become a little bit of a better presenter of science to people i think so it's been an amazing opportunity i'm really grateful for actually being able to work on it and it's not completely over yeah, yeah. yeah. we are still
0: here we still
7: say charlie it's not working <laughs> 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 but we'll get to learn from you so i think it's a great opportunity for us to learn from you and to also give our best to it Uh,
1: make it your own yeah Yeah.
7: add our own like spice make it more flavorful
1: excellent good luck (laughs)
7: thank you (laughs) now
0: for our third interview back to monique interviewing grant munro about the hidden heroes of astronomy
2: hi i'm here with grant munro who's the manager at esr space hi there Um, welcome to the Jobcast. could you tell us a little bit about what you're doing at blue dot this weekend
8: Okay, we're here this weekend uh, to show off a bit of space hardware we, we have in our, uh, in our company that we're quite lucky to have actually, um, and it's actually part of the Hubble Space Telescope. And it spent eight years in space, during which time it orbited the Earth 45,000 times. Actually, we moved premises uh, a couple of years ago, and this piece of hardware basically lived on our clean room roof for all of that time in a box. And we uh, just so happened to had a chance encounter with Tim O'Brien uh, earlier last year, and he asked if we did any outreach stuff, and I said we'd do a, a bit, but um, Blue Dot sounded like a great idea, and uh, I said we'd, we'd bring this piece of hardware along, and I checked with my colleagues first, so that was <laughs> all right. Um, and we brought it along, and it was a huge success. And, and I think one of the nice things about Blue Dot has been that you, you put in you know a, a certain amount of effort and the, the return you get on that the number of people that come through the stands is just absolutely amazing we, we can do that with with any other sort of you know activity in quite the same way you know you'd have to visit a lot of schools to achieve that same, same reach so it's, it's brilliant it really is and it's a great event um the, the the range of people is just astonishing really from toddlers through to some pretty hardcore festival goes <laughs> so.
2: yeah no it's definitely a very mixed crowd in a, in a fantastic way really so could you tell us a little bit more about what you do at ESR
8: yeah so my my role is to design spacecraft mechanisms uh, so as, as a business we really have a, a focus on overcoming tribology problems that's lubrication friction and wear issues and in the space environment in, in vacuum that that's a, a particular challenge um, so my role really is about designing mechanisms that, that achieve certain performance you know, in light of that challenge. So we'll design mechanisms for often science missions. Uh, so we had a recent uh, piece of hardware that was delivered for the uh, SPICE instrument on Solar Orbiter. So that will be launched, um, I think, early 2019 now. Uh, and that's, um, that's one of ten instruments on Solar Orbiter that's going to really enhance our understanding of the The solar atmosphere uh, physics. Uh, So, as an engineer, it's not really my strength, but but you do you kind of absorb some of it as as you work on these programs. Uh, So it's a a spectrometer. um, So it's it's looking at uh, the different. It's amazing what they can determine from the the data from these instruments in terms of of direction and. you know the, the dynamics of the atmosphere it's, it's it's amazing really
2: yeah no that sounds fascinating i bet you get to meet lots of you know fascinating researchers as well researchers as well as part of it yeah
8: i think i think more so at the the start of the program we yeah. we did sort of meet a really broad range of of engineers and scientists um solar to there's a lot of uk activity there i think uh ucl have a, a big part to play in that yeah. um And we've got some great solar physicists, I think, in this country. So, um, you know, I think think it is is a good mission for the UK, I should say. Um, So, yeah, we we delivered a mechanism to RAL Space down in Oxfordshire, who who were the prime for the instrument. And then that was delivered, the instrument itself was delivered uh, just a few weeks ago, really. And already it's been bolted onto the side of the spacecraft in Stevenage. So the the whole spacecraft's being built in uh, Airbus in, in Stevenage.
2: Which is amazing because I think I actually I had no idea up until this weekend how much the UK was involved in the space industry. Yes, I think
8: I think it's often said that we're we're sort of a sort of unsung um, Sort of heroes, but I think across science missions, and, and Hubble's a fantastic example. So many things so many people think that is a is a NASA mission and it's purely NASA, and but actually ESA have played a huge part in, in those huge observatories like like the Hubble and like James Webb as well. I mean, if you look at James Webb, the the really the business end of James Webb are the, are the science instruments, of which two of those. At least two of those were, were poorly developed in, in Europe, and, and you know it, it it was a huge thing for European industry So um, it's a it's a really it's a really big project, and, and ESA are very much you know partners in that that programme. So I think we should always correct people when they, they yeah. talk about these NASA programmes, because you know we we are very much a part of that, and and, and really at the sharp end as well.
2: Yeah, we kind of undersell the European involvement. Right?
8: Yes, yeah, I think that that's that's probably true to some yeah. extent. Um, although I think engineers are particularly uh, fairly cautious about overselling stuff. You know, we and and with the type of work we do, where you're really dealing with risk, mm-hmm. you have to be very realistic about you know the, the chances of success, and you do everything you can, but you certainly don't. You know, you don't count your chickens too early So I think we, we are a little bit, bit cautious in that respect
2: No, and I guess you have to be And one of the things that just blows my mind About anything that gets sent into space Is that it pretty much has to work well the first time <laughs> Yes, so, so,
8: yeah, I mean, that, that, that whole that whole process Of making sure things uh, work, whether in orbit you, The Hubble's a, a, another rare exception In that it, it was serviceable but, but the James Webb won't be It's going so far away and there are so many mechanisms that really have to work, and and that that reliability, that the whole the whole process of engineering is is directed at that that reliability at the end, and um, understanding how these these things are really going to work, and making sure they they do, and uh, and that's really why our our organisation exists. Really, I mean, we we've been working with ESA since 1972, obviously not personally, yeah. <laughs> um, but we want to contract then to know, to, to look at uh, developing lubricants and, and testing them. And that was around the time the, the very first European satellites. I mean, it freed its ESA, in fact, it was, it was called ESRO then. Um, and, you know, satellites have always had, spacecraft have always had mechanisms on them. And I think they've always been a you know critical part of, of the mission. So, you know, we, We've been part of that whole process over the years of making sure that these things work on orbit and we can get them right first time and we've, we've been, on the whole we've been very lucky because when you do follow that process things generally work um, and I think there are there are very few instances where we've been involved in programs and they really haven't so we've been very fortunate in that respect, you know, that there have been failed launches and. And other problems, but I think we, we've got a pretty good track record, of, um one that we, we hope to maintain, of course.
2: Yeah, hopefully. So, how? What are the kind of typical timescales of that kind of project? So, say what you've been doing. Say something you've been working on recently with Spice, for example.
8: Yeah, So, Spice. Um, Spice, in the end, was about a four-year mission. Mm-hmm. Um, generally, missions sort of target a program of three years. We, mm-hmm. You know, they they, they they do an occasion experience problems we we had we had our own problems mm-hmm. um but again part of you know part of the job is is following that problem through to a solution and, and you know with, with good engineering hopefully you'll get there yeah. and you'll deliver something that works and and i think thankfully as a result of going through the, that program we, we you know we, we flushed out a few other things that we maybe could improve as well and and in the in the main i think space programs don't often don't allow enough time for iteration and, and, and development really um, it's better now I think there was a, a time about 10 years ago where everyone wanted to do it leaner and quicker but I don't think that really worked quite that way um, so yeah three, three year mission is generally sort of standard Uh three year development is generally standard um, but for a big programme like like a Hubble or a James Webb uh, or a Beppy Colombo, which has been in the news this week, you know th- those are technologically demanding, and, and there's a whole programme of development work that, that feeds into that that spacecraft sort of detailed design programme. So again, we get involved in that kind of thing. Um, so maybe within the last decade, we've you know you could, on one day you could be working on. Uh, James Webb, which would be operating at 35 kelvin, uh, and in the afternoon you'd, you'd be walking, working on becky Colombo, which would be sort of 350 degrees C. You know, and then those are kind of the two extremes that, that we've, you know, been working on. Recently, so you've got infrared which needs the cold, and then you've got Pepe Columba, which is of course going to Mercury, and and things get very hot there. Yeah,
2: that sounds fantastically varied. Um, So, could you give us a taste of some of the kind of challenges you faced on working on one of these um, missions?
8: Yeah, so um, the challenges really I mean, we we do sort of get involved in uh, programs where the the lifetime, for example, is is a challenge. and our lubricants have to last for the, for the mission duration. Um, you know, and it, it might be a bearing that has to rotate at a certain speed for a certain number of years. And, you know, really you're, you're, you're looking at the, the main aspects are the environment, so it's a in vacuum. Um, increasingly, ground testing is a big thing. So whereas you maybe got away 10 years ago with, with a much shorter on-ground uh, budget, um you now have to develop something to, to you know that can be used for more calibration activities there's, there's people who't just want to do more testing they want to prove things um, but that comes at a cost and some lubricants which work very well in vacuum don't necessarily work very well in air or, or the nitrogen environment that we sometimes use and it also places constraints on the on the spacecraft engineers you know if you're testing a satellite you might have to you know Give it some kind of nitrogen purge to protect the bearings or, or even test it in certain orientations sometimes, that can make a difference. Uh, that's a big constraint on the, on the person building the satellite. That's <laughs> right, <laughs> um,
2: no, I thought you were going to say something. Well um, yeah. <laughs> no, it's fine. And so when you're creating these tests on Earth, obviously you can create a near vacuum and you can approximate the temperatures, but you can't create zero G. It, is that something you have to take into account and does it impact the performance of anything? I'm not sure how it would, but I just thought I'd ask yeah
8: zero g i've been, I've actually been asked that quite a lot this week whether we do any any tests on the ISS or on a on a zero g plane or anything it's 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 quite an easily quantifiable effect so in some cases we know we can we can make allowances for perhaps a little bit of extra load on a bearing for example we're testing. Um, In general it's not something we do um, but there are obviously uncertainties related to it so and particularly with liquid lubricants we use on occasions we use um, greases and oils and obviously those if they're sitting for a long time in vacuum on earth you know there's a gravitational effect to how those will will migrate within the, the hardware so keeping your oil in the right place in the bearing is a big challenge and, and obviously gravity has an influence on in that but it's generally not something we've really had to focus too much on but there's certainly areas and questions that can be answered and I think yeah it's probably not the top priority right now but there are certainly areas where where it could be um
2: and what is the top priority
8: yeah we i think on the solid lubrication side we're, we're looking to um, improve that balance between testing in vacuum and testing in air i think there's, a, there's very much a, a customer demand for that and it influences much more of the higher volume commercial stuff um i think with with the real extremes of missions duration you know they tend to be one-off science missions um and therefore there's not the, the demand in the industry for that so and ultimately it's that demand that, that pays the bills really um and the money has to come from somewhere and you know it has to be a big problem to spend that kind of money on on solving it really and, and that's the reality of, of what we do sometimes it's you know because it
2: so what other industries does your work apply to um well
8: we really can can add a lot to any any vacuum industry really mm-hmm. uh, you know we're quite unique in that we've got a, a huge body of test data from 45 years um, probably one of our most successful space spin-outs has been into the medical industry so we we provide a, a huge amount of um, bearing lubricated uh, lubrication products to the uh, to the medical industry, so they go to MRI scanners and things, so if you've been in, a, in an MRI scanner at any time uh, the chances are more likely than not, they, they've got a bearing without lubrication in, uh, and originally the problem there was that the bearings were awfully noisy, um, the noisy places are the best of times, but yes. they were, I think they were exceptionally noisy before we got involved, mm-hmm. and, and we developed a, a coating based on silver, so a very thin film of silver um, less than a micron thick and that's uh, that coating is is what provides the, the the reliable sort of smooth rotation of those bearings. It's it's still not in general general terms that smooth, but it, it's certainly better than what they have.
2: Yeah. So next time I have an MRI scan, I'll be <laughs> keeping that in mind.
8: Yeah. I bought my dog in the morning, and I pass one every day. Actually, local hospital, right. so I think about that every yeah. time I see. It.
2: Well, no, but that's great to see that it's kind of the same um, science and engineering you're putting through. Like, I mean, obviously the situation is very different and yeah. there's, um, you know, slightly different um, problems you have to think about, but that's fantastic to see the applicability of it. Yeah.
8: Yeah, I mean, th- there are other industries. I mean, increasingly we're, we're getting a little bit involved in um, fusion energy. Wow. Uh, so people are interested in that. I mean, these are big long-term programs and there's so many material developments that are required. Um but in terms of the remote handling, there, um, you know, you have to operate this this um, fusion reactor for maybe twenty years, and at the end of it, you want to decommission it robotically, and you want to know that a screw is going to come out, and that, again, that's a um, lubrication problem, really. So we're looking at our our lubricants for that purpose as well.
2: And that's really long term. Like I, I I'd never stop and think that everyone has to think about this before they start. Yeah, know I think
8: I mean that's the. That's the beauty of, of what we do, actually. That, that, probably the best bit for me on working on these big programs is, is just the, all the people that come together with their skills. And and after you know what is essentially a big bun fight, you come out at the end with with something that's really amazing. And then, you know, I think that's the challenge for me, just bringing that whole systems engineering together to create something that's... Probably much better than you thought you could achieve at the start. So there's a bit of give and take involved, um, but it's you know it's that collaboration. I think is uh, probably the most rewarding part. That and launching a spacecraft and seeing those <laughs> images come back a few years later. That's, yes. that's always nice.
2: Um, no, that is yeah, pretty incredible. And um, so, how did you even get into this?
8: Uh, for me personally, I probably wasn't one of those people that grew up really thinking that's what I want to do. Yeah. Um, I. At university I developed an interest in optics uh, and then uh, also an interest in sort of dynamic testing, vibration and things like that and I think just those interests came together in a way that was just really lent itself to developing spacecraft instruments. So yeah. so I went to work at the Rutherford Appleton Laboratory yeah. in Oxfordshire after I graduated um, and after spending time there, which was really fascinating, I worked on some great projects. I think there was an element of um, lots of, you know, lots of big projects and and not not too many people to work on them. So you got sort of you know dropped headfirst into some pretty amazing things. You, within a few weeks of being there, I was working on Beagle, um, which uh, which is nice, and it launched very quickly afterwards. I mean, it's quite rare for anybody I think to get involved as a graduate on something that. That essentially flies so quickly afterwards, um, and then within 18 months it—I think 18 months—it landed on Mars. and As we know now, it, it, it has survived. So um, that was obviously a, a long wait to, to find that out. Um, so that was great. Um, and then after after several years of working there, um, I I saw this opportunity came up um, up in Warrington, and so that was working on spacecraft mechanisms, um, and I think that was quite attractive to me, um, you, you might have guessed that I'm originally from the North, so there's a, there's a bit of sort of thinking about that, and um, so that, that sort of influenced my decision, I came up and really haven't been back, it's, uh, mechanism engineering is, you know, some critical stuff there, it's the sharp end, there's nowhere to hide, you know, you, you can't blag your way out of the, the problems we have, so I quite like that, uh, you know, it's... Sorts out the um, you know, yeah. It, I think it really challenges your engineering skills, um, and and you have to be right. You, you you can't. It's not like being a politician. You you can't win the argument and be wrong. You you have to use your judgment, win the argument and be right. And and your reputation depends on it. And um, I'm I'm really lucky to work with a bunch of really uh, committed, experienced people who you know have. devoted a lot of time to understanding this and it's quite nice to be part of a team like that Uh, and i think overall you know the space industry is full of people like that so anyone thinking you know about working in engineering you know it it, there are a lot of committed people that are really focused on you know doing the job and and doing the right thing And, and the things that come out from it are really you know really good you know whether it's looking at climate change whether it's planetary exploration science you know there's some really great benefits to society doing this you know that helps helps you sleep at night yeah Yeah. I
2: I would say in my opinion engineers are the unsung heroes of science genuinely because all of those fantastic pictures we see from the Hubble and those telescopes wouldn't be there without you
8: yeah I think um, I think that's certainly true I think we could always do more to celebrate our successes I think that's probably true often those successes um Come a long time after doing the work, and we're already onto the new thing that interests us. Engineers are probably some of the worst people for that, and myself <laughs> included, probably. Um, and yeah, I think I think this—it's uh, very rewarding, though. and I think a lot of people are very sort of self-satisfied, and you know, um, it's quite—it's quite a rewarding, rewarding career. Uh, but but you're right; we have to sell it to the next generation, don't we? Otherwise, you know. I think we,
2: we all lose out. Yeah, well, it's been great to speak to you and I had a fantastic insight into what you do. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks for that, Monique. And for our final interview, we've got something a little bit different. It was another interview that took place at Blue Dot. Monique interviewed the Welcome Centre for Mitochondrial Research and University of Newcastle's Amy Vincent about mitochondrial disorders. And at the end of September, it was Mitochondrial Awareness Week. And we received a postcard, which you might have seen that we tweeted, which is from Jed Buttress, who was an artist who was collaborating with these guys at Blue Dot and making ink prints and posting them to people during the week. And we received one quite by surprise via the post on that week. I wasn't expecting it. I imagine that this happened during the interview and Monique got it organised as a nice surprise for us. So if any of the listeners were at Blue Dot, they might have got some of these as well. But it's very nice. It's a prostate mitochondria, which is actually prettier than it sounds. So, <laughs> <laughs> You certainly wouldn't guess that what it was by looking
7: at it. It no, just, just looked no. like modern
0: art. Yeah. Mm. Yeah.
1: So,
7: it's like polka dots.
1: Yeah.
7: <laughs> With so, a bird in it. Yeah, it looks like a bird.
1: It's like one of those... <laughs> oh, yeah, it does. Yeah. <laughs> um, I see it now. Yeah. It's a bit like an eye test. I think. Yeah. <laughs> so, Amy Vincent gave us a brief biology lesson, introduced us to these diseases and the relevance of mitochondrial research to dementia. So, Take a listen.
2: Hi, I'm here with Amy Vincent from the Welcome Centre for Mitochondrial Research in Newcastle University. Welcome to the Jodcast.
6: Hi, nice to meet you. Yeah, I hope you're enjoying the festival. I am. Yeah, it's, it's really good. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are you doing here at Blue Dot? So we're here mainly to raise awareness of mitochondrial disease, but we've got a collaboration with an artist called Jed that's also based at Newcastle. So what we're trying to do is fi- kind of translate our images from the lab into nice nice artwork. So he's generated some wood blocks based on our images and he's printing postcards to send out to people. Oh, that's very cool. Um, so what are mitochondria? Um, so mitochondria are essentially the batteries of the cell. So they make all the energy that all the cells in your body need. So if you have a problem with the mitochondria, it's the it's the tissues that require the most energy that start to, to have problems with working, like the brain and the muscle and the heart as well. Um, and our mitochondrial disease is things that affect lots of people? So, mitochondrial diseases are actually quite rare, particularly, so it's it's sort of an umbrella term. You have uh, lots of different conditions that come under mitochondrial diseases, which each of them are very rare, but actually when you put them all together, it does make start to make up a, quite a, a large group of people. And the other thing is that we have a lot of research that's going on that are into other diseases that you have mitochondrial dysfunction associated with, so things like Parkinson's disease. Alzheimer's, MS, and actually you get some dysfunction when you're just through general healthy aging. So sort of 70 and 80-year-olds will have a, a degree of mitochondrial dysfunction just just based on the aging process. So the stuff you're looking into, it applies
2: to people who suffer from these diseases, but also the wider population.
6: Yeah, absolutely. And obviously we see with Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease, because you see mitochondrial dysfunction in these, that's really important with our of population because we need to understand what's happening to these people who are getting things like dementia and stuff like that to be able to you know, treat people and have healthier, longer lives. And what do we know so far about what might be the causes for stuff like this? So at the moment, it's not very well characterised. So we, we know to what extent we get changes in the mitochondria with things like Parkinson's disease, but we don't really have a full grasp on whether it's the Parkinson's disease that's affecting the mitochondria or vice versa. So how much is the the mitochondrial dysfunction contributing to to Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease? That we're not quite sure yet. I guess it's still a work in progress. (laughs) It is. is. It's a lot of work going on and a lot of work left to go.
2: That's always good for scientists. Um, So what do you specifically work on?
6: So I actually work on uh, muscle. So what I aim to do is within the mitochondria, they have their own DNA and you have a particular group of conditions where mutations arise in them. And as they arise, because the mitochondrial DNA is present in so many copies, they could arise in just one mitochondrial DNA. Over the lifespan, they accumulate to a point where it could be like 75% of the mitochondrial DNA that's mutated and what I'm trying to do is understand how that process happens in muscle in the hope that because the accumulation is what causes the dysfunction of the tissue that we can intervene and try and slow that accumulation. And have you got any ideas for how you might do that or is it at the very early stage? So it's, it, I wouldn't say it's at the early stage, it's something that people have been working on for decades now and it's a very difficult problem to tackle to understand even part of the story of what's happening. So at the moment we've got some ideas of what pathways within the cell we can target and how we might treat them but it's it's still quite a, a way for being a, a potential treatment so there's a lot of work left to go.
2: So what's your day-to-day work like? Are you, you
6: know in the lab? I have no idea. What are you doing in your field? <laughs> So my day-to-day is actually quite variable, Um, so some days i can have a day where, yeah, I'm in the lab, I'll maybe do some some staining of some muscle tissue, pop that on the microscope and have a look at it. But other days I'll have days that are sort of analysing the data that I've got or analysing images that I've taken, lots of writing to to sort of draw in other areas of research and understand my results. um, yeah, it's quite variable. It's really nice to have a, a bit of a mix. What and so what for you is the thing you're most looking forward to in your fields? Like, um, I would say the thing I'm most looking forward to actually is that we've so we recently had three-parent IVF go through a parliamentary debate and get legalised within the UK. So our centre applied in November to be a centre that was able to do this, and we're just we're in the process of, sort of setting this up and being able to collect donor eggs and start this IVF process for some of the patients and I think it would just be so rewarding to to see these first children born that are disease-free from parents who would have passed on mitochondrial disease so that's 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 what I'm looking to. yeah
2: no that's that's lovely and actually because I've heard of that process but I had no idea what it was for so that's really good to hear about the impact and how it's actually going to happen Um, Great, well thank you for talking to us on the Jodcast That's okay And I hope you enjoy the rest of the festival Thank you, you too
4: Thanks for that Monique And now on to the rest of the feedback And so myself and Naomi have had our first postcard this month In our capacity as quote-unquote chief (laughs) Jodcasters So it is from Camino de Santiago Which is north to northwest Spain As I'll just read what we've got Hola! While well, binge listening to your fabulous podcast and after a hard day cycling the Camino, I thought I'd send you a postcard. Keep up the great work. Buen Camino from Ellen. Excellent. Thank you, Ellen. What's Thank on you, the front? Ellen. I had a little look on Wikipedia and this is apparently St. James. Oh. The mythology says that he rests at the top of the Camino. This is a monastery up in the northwest of Spain.
7: Well, that's nice. <laughs> Interesting. Let me have a look.
0: He looks really confused.
7: Like he's tired. Yeah. Well, to be fair, if he's a
4: saint, you've got a lot of weight on your shoulders.
7: <laughs> yeah, the sins of the world.
0: Yeah, I guess he's got many pressing matters at hand. <laughs> yeah. mm. Cool. Excellent. And there's been no feedback from Facebook, Twitter or Flickr. And we also have no emails recently except one today that came just to tell us our RSS feed wasn't working. But we fixed that now. So hopefully all is well. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net.
1: On Twitter at twitter.com slash
4: Jodcast.
7: On Facebook at facebook.com slash Jodcast.
4: On YouTube at youtube.com slash Jodcast.
7: On Flickr at
0: flickr.com slash groups slash Jodcast.
1: And don't forget that you can send us post. The address is on the website.
0: Thanks to Amy Vincent, Beth Rogers, John Spooner, and Grant Munro for the interviews. The editors were George Bendo, Andrea DeGaru, Monique Henson, Tom Scragg, and Charlie Walker. The producers were Benjamin Shaw and Charlie Walker. Until next time. Gide Gide on. On. <laughs>